Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome to Tax Tuesday. If you are expecting to hear about taxes, you're in the right place. If you're expecting to hear about car repair, I think you're on the wrong spot. But it's Tax Tuesday. I'm Toby Mathis. And I'm Jeff Webb. And uh, it's bringing tax knowledge to the masses. And so we've been doing this for a lot of years. So let's explain the rules. Since uh, I'm like Brian, what is it, the guy on CNN who says he wouldn't go to a party if there were no rules. We're going to have rules so that Brian will show up at our party. All right. Ask live. See if anybody catches that one. Anybody's been paying attention. This guy named Elon Musk on Twitter. I just find that fascinating. All right. So you can ask live questions via the chat. You can ask live questions via the Q&A. If you have specific questions to your situation, ask via the question and answer. If you just like to harass me or harass Jeff, go into chat. All right. So we got to dive in because I tend to go over and Jeff's really good about not going over. I bet you guys were on time. I think we were. I think we got done a few minutes early. Got done early. Who do you have? Elliot. Elliot? Elliot was rocking it. Elliot, you're on. I didn't see it. I got to go check that out. Elliot's good. He's, he's concise to the point. All right. So it's supposed to be fast, fun, and educational. We want to get back and help educate. Feel free. It's a free-for-all. It's a free-for-all. We also have, speaking of Elliot, Elliot is uh, answering questions in the Q&A along with Troy. I don't think we have anybody else. We have Patty and Ander answering questions. But from an accounting standpoint, I think we have Troy and, and Elliot. It's just been crazy. Somebody says, I was in Anacortes over the weekend and the Tulip Festival in Skagit Valley is beautiful this time of year. You should check that out, guys. If you've never been in Skagit Valley when all them tulips are going, uh, it is beautiful. Just acres and acres and acres of tulips. So yeah, it is beautiful. And Anacortes is pretty, very pretty. My mom near, lives near downtown. And uh, what is it? The Rockfish Grill she likes to go to. It's probably a bar. She says it's a grill, but I think my mom's she's probably drinking the beers again. All right. Which she's entitled to do. She's she's she, I think that's a, not necessarily a bad thing at times. All right. Let's go over all the questions that we have. Is retirement income considered passive or active income? If it is a passive income, then can passive real estate depreciation can be used against retirement income. That one, it's a little bit wonky, but I'm trying to read it. Please let me know. Maybe I read it wrong. <laughs> if it is a passive income, then can passive real estate depreciation can be used again. So it's not me. All right. So I thought maybe mm -hmm. I'd been drinking. So while I answer that question, my S Corp, which was established over 30 years ago, owes me over a million dollars accumulated for several years of losses. Last year, we sold two properties owned by the business, and we, and we still had to pay gains on the properties. Why is this? Why can't the profits be paid out to me tax-free based on the loans I've made to the company? Good question. These are really good questions, by the way, for, the, for a couple of reasons why you guys don't even realize. It's good ones. I've been told that filing Schedule E for rental properties, which I've been doing for the past several years, is not a good way to report your income and expenses from rentals. I want to file form 1065, but I don't have a partner and don't intend to get one. 
I think form 1120 or 1120S is a good way to file. I, I think they meant to say, I don't think, but it's a good way to file either. What do you recommend for next year? So we'll go over that. We'll explain it to you. I closed on a co-owned rental property in April, 2021. I did not have an LLC with my co-owner and we are still in the process of forming an LLC to protect the asset. Can we still take all the real estate deductions on our 2021 tax return absent having an LLC in place last year? Good question. Good question. Very good. Yeah. Can you defer the depreciation recapture along with capital gain by doing a 1031X, which just stands for exchange? How does cost segregation play into the calculation? So that's a good one too. Mm -hmm. We have good questions today. You guys always, we get about 400 questions and they go and they answer a ton of them. And then they grab ones that they say, this would be good for live. And they, and they dump them on me. And then I'm like, oh, let me grab 10. And I'm probably the laziest person at picking questions. Cause I'm like, oh, here's 10. And that usually I throw an extra couple in there. Cause I can't help, but I start, hey, that's a good question. But then we're here till midnight. So I grabbed 10 today. These good are job. good ones. And then Jeff always says, did you even read them? <laughs> Is lending considered active income versus rents or passive income? How do I account for any income I get on lending on real estate deals? And how is it run through my LLC account? Interesting question. We will answer it. I borrowed $100,000 to purchase a property. I get a good deal on the property since I paid $100,000 for a property valued at $150,000. Is there a taxable basis of $50,000 in the year of the purchase? Or is the $50,000 capital gains only taxable upon the sale of the property if I sell it for $150,000. So interesting interesting way to phrase this. We will definitely go over that and, and answer it. Uh, we have a few more. I am a limited liability partner in an, uh, an apartment complex LLP, limited liability partnership. It is registered as an LLP in Delaware, but the apartments are in Alaska. This will be the first year of the partnership. How do you recommend estimating and preparing for next year's tax liability? It's my understanding that I'll pay tax on my share of the K-1 income, regardless of the amount paid out to investors during the year. How does this affect state taxes also? Good questions, right? I just sold my condo that I owed for owned for three years. One year I lived and two years I read it. How long do I have before I have to pay taxes on my sale? <laughs> Good question. Interesting. How do you establish the cost basis of passive real estate investments upon owner's death? Oh, so now we have, we finish with the with death. We saved the best for last. All right, that's all the questions today. We'll go through them all before oh, we do that. Ending the show. Hey, we're done early. <laughs> After five minutes, we didn't answer a thing, but no, no. So here we go. Here's how veteran investors leverage their stock market to build passive income. So this is a Infinity Investing event with Eric Dodds and myself this Saturday. We call it financial freedom for those who serve. It's specifically tailored towards uh, the service community, the military community, uh, and their families. And it'll be on stock trading on Saturday. It's absolutely free. If you would like to attend, Patty will share out a link in chat, and you guys can absolutely register. There is no cost, and uh, don't worry, we're not hitting you over the head with anything. The whole idea is to help people make money, and that's what our Infinity side does. We do a very good job at it. There's been a lot of success there. And when the stock market's doing things like it did today, you'll be glad you're in infinity. Let's dive in. Is retirement income considered passive or active income? If it's passive income, then can passive real estate depreciation be used against retirement income? Please let me know. Jeff, what do you say? 
Retirement income is in one of those weird categories. It's not passive income. It's not active or earned income. It's not portfolio income. It's ordinary income. It's ordinary income. Uh, we just had this discussion not that long ago, did we? Retirement income is one of those things that have, especially at the state level, really special considerations. A lot of states won't tax retirement income, especially if it's from the government or from military service. Uh, in Kentucky, I know, doesn't tax retirement income at all. But what you brought up earlier was, well, it's not going to offset your passive losses. The other side is it can cause Social Security to become taxable. Yeah, so the, the easiest way to look at it is people like to talk about active, in, active income and passive income. Active income is sweat of your brow or you're going to be materially participating in an activity that creates Social Security tax on it. So when you have retirement income, it's not subject to Social Security, but it can make whatever income you have or whatever Social Security benefits you're <clears throat> receiving if you're retired taxable. And that's kind of mean, but uh, it's not considered passive or active. It's just ordinary income. And uh, the other two types of income is portfolio and passive. So you have active portfolio income and, uh, and passive. And passive, there's only two types, businesses in which you do not materially participate mm -hmm. and rental real estate. So it's not one of those. You're not engaged in a business. It's just rental income. So it's just ordinary income. It's not a portfolio income. It's not capital gains. It's not dividends. It is just literally ordinary income. And so you, you could, there's really not a thing called retirement income. There's no designation. It's just income. And the only question is, uh, are you materially participating to generate it? And the answer is no, you don't pay social security on it. So you just pay regular taxes on it. But if it's, it's not passive, so you can't use your real estate depreciation against it, Although there are two ways to make real estate depreciation when it creates a loss, there are two ways to make it to where you could use it against that income, which would be to be a real estate professional or to be an active participant in real estate. If you're retired, there's a good chance you'd qualify for the active participation for sure, which is if you're making less than $150,000 a year, you would get an elevated, you'll be able to write off up to $25,000 of your real estate losses if you are managing the manager. Active participation is really minimal. You're doing something with your properties. Very exciting. I know. Some of you guys are like, get me something with some caffeine. I have a Coke Zero. This is a good question. Yeah. My S Corp, which was established over 30 years ago, owes me a boatload of money. It owes me a million bucks. I've been feeding this thing money. Last year, we sold two properties owned <coughs> by the business. And we still have to pay taxes on the gains. Why is this? In other words, they were losing money year after year and you're dumping it in. Why can't profits be paid out to be tax-free based on the loans I made the company? Here's how S-Corps work. Mm -hmm. Cut me off if I get carried away. You've had an S-Corp for 30 years and let's say you've taken a loss every single year. Well, you've also been recognizing that loss on your personal return. So if I lose 10,000 this year, I'm going to have a $10,000 mm -hmm. loss on my 1040. Now, you've also been financing those losses by putting money into your S-corporation. And what that does is you're eventually going to use up your basis, that original money that you put into your S-corporation. So you're using those, those shareholder loans to the S-corporation to be able to take those losses over the past 30 years. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's kind of weird. You're, your company making a loss or a gain doesn't matter about you putting money into the company. Correct. That company 
you know, let's just say that I put $10,000 in and the company uses that $10,000 to buy, did I say $10,000? $100,000 of equipment or $200,000 of equipment. They put $10,000 down on something that becomes a deduction. It would create a paper loss in that scenario if it's equipment of 200,000. And then the only question is, do I have adequate basis to be able to take that loss against my other Mm -hmm. income? And yes or no, but whatever the case, that loss flows out. And now we're back to zero again the next year. So it didn't matter how I did two years ago. What matters is how I did this year. So all the million dollars that it owes you, it still owes you, but that has nothing to do with whether it makes money or not. If it makes money, it could pay you back. But if it makes money, it's paying tax on that income regardless. Just the same way that if you're paying off a mortgage, you could say, hey, I have to pay this mortgage. Why do I have to pay tax on my income? I'm just paying off my mortgage because they're two very different things. One is a is a liability that's owed. So you have, in your, the company has a liability to you of a million bucks. You're saying, hey, pay me that back. And then the company sells a bunch of assets at a gain. The fact that it's using it to pay you back means nothing. It could write off the interest, but that's about it. Well, and here's where it gets really wonky. If I've used this million dollars to support losses, mm-hmm. as soon as my S corporation pays me that money back, it triggers a capital gain. Yeah. Because you have no basis in that loan. You've already used it up for these past year's losses. And this oftentimes but, surprises people. Right. But in, in, that means you've been taking a loss all this yeah. time. Yes. So you're not paying tax on other income. So, hey, I have a loss coming through my S-Corp of $10,000. It means I didn't pay tax on $10,000 that I received from my employer or someplace else, right? So again, it's two different things. Whenever you're dealing with an S-Corp or a partnership or uh, Mm -hmm. you're looking at, did it make money? It's passing down to me. My interaction with with that company, as far as how much money did I put in or take out, completely different. So I mean, I can give you 20 examples. An S-corp could make a million bucks, but not pay it to you. You still pay tax on the million bucks. It flows down to you. And you're saying, hey, it never paid me the money. Correct. Doesn't matter. The money going between you and it does not matter. What matters is, did it make money that 12-month period? That's it. So yeah, so I'm sorry that you're getting that. And it's probably, you're just, it's, it's a mind twist. You're like, hey, it owes me all this money. Can't it just make money and not pay tax on it when it pays me back? No, because it's not an expense. And nor do you recognize it necessarily as income. If I've been traditionally loaning it to the company and it pays me back, in other words, I have a shareholder loan, mm-hmm. a loan from shareholder, company can pay me back. If I didn't use it to take losses, there's no tax ramification. You know, sometimes what we like to do because of the whole capital gain issue is instead of doing shareholder loans in those corporation, contribute it. We contribute it. Yeah. And you can always pull that money back out as a distribution in, in if a, you have basis. In a con- contribution just means it's your basis of share. So it's, it's yeah. you know, you don't take a deduction for it, but when you do that, that increases your basis. So you're able to take more uh, losses, but then it's not a loan. It's a contribute. It's a shareholder basis in your shares, you know? So, mm-hmm. so yeah. And then if it, pays you back. If you take a loss and then it pays you money some someday and it pays that again, that's capital gain because you already got your money back. Anyway, that's that's why it gets, I found this one pretty interesting because you're looking at it going, this is where it's, uh, it's a brain twister because you're like, hey, it owes me the money, but it doesn't mean it's deductible. Let's go. I've been told that filing Schedule E for rental properties, which I've been doing for the past several years, is not a good way to report your income and expenses from rentals. 
I want to file a form 1065, which is a partnership tax form. But if I don't have a partner and don't intend to get one, so now they're thinking corporations, maybe. What do you recommend? What do you think? I would stay away from corporations. There's just other issues with them and having appreciated property in them. I think there's some, is there some liability issues to go along with that? Or is it? If I take an appreciated asset out of a corp, it's going to be a taxable event. Right. So if you ever have real estate and you have to refi it, it's going to be a big tax hit to you to pull it out, do the refi, and then put it back in. And that's going to be for an S corp or a C corporation. Always a taxable event. Yep. So you don't want to do that. And you're probably, where, where does, here, I'll ask you a question. I do a partnership return. Where does that K-1 end up anyway? Ends up back on my 1040. What schedule? Uh, schedule E, but page two. Two, yep. So the reason that you hear Schedule E isn't good, it's, it's not that it's not good. All of your real estate, if it's coming through a partnership or you own it individually, is going on your Schedule E. It's whether it's page one or page two, and the lenders treat them differently. Page one, they use, what, 75% of the, the income. Page two, 100%. So let's go to that question about it's not good on page one of Schedule E. Mm-hmm. If I'm not planning on buying any more properties or refinance or anything, does it really matter? If I'm buying for cash, it doesn't matter at all. The only reason you want it on page two is for lenders and simplicity of your return. So let's say I had 20 properties and I have it on page one of my Schedule E. I have, tw- I think it's what, three properties per page. So you're going to have seven pages plus an additional seven pages mm-hmm. for the supporting document. So you're talking about you know 15 pages of properties at least. Whereas if I do it on a 1065, I'm going to have the same thing on a t- on a, on my partnership return, but it's going to give me a K1, and I only have to put the K1 on my. Uh, I'm only going to have one line item, which is going to be my my K1 line item on page two. So it doesn't it doesn't really matter unless you are financing and you're doing traditional financing. And that it only matters if you need that income, if you're having difficulty qualifying for loans. If it's just you and you don't have a partner, you'd have to create a partner, which means you'd have either a trust or a corporation or another partnership that would have to be the other partner. If you're married, it could be a spouse. Even if you're in a community property state, you could could still elect and treat it like a partnership. But um, I get what you're saying. Simplicity is sometimes a little easier. I would even consider having... uh a partner that's a family member, give mm. them a half a percent or whatever, enough that you can create that partnership if you really need If you it. really want it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I just, uh, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't even. I, I see it as a big deal when you're growing your real estate and uh, you're using traditional loans. It's mm-hmm. not a big deal at all when you're going portfolio loans. You get over 10 properties, you're out of this anyway. So I guess what I would say is this is really only something if you're getting... Freddie and Fannie loans in your less than 10 properties. By the way, if you like obscure information, <laughs> there we go. By all means, go to our YouTube channel. Uh, let me see if I can make that red. I'm going to make it do little things. Look at that. I made it go. Wee. You go to the YouTube channel. And by the way, I have a ton of different videos. You can go in there and you'll see. I put up a few examples. There's a whole bunch. Uh, everything from protecting your assets to lowering your taxes. There we go. B- business credit, protecting from creditors, avoiding capital gains, how to avoid the wash sale, which is pretty ingenious, if I might say so myself, avoiding penalties and uh, legally lowering your taxes. There are just a few that have come out in the last few days. Uh, you'll see that there's top videos and uploads. So if you feel like it, 
join. And if you join, turn on that little ring bell or whatever it is where it gives you notifications because that's where we put out whenever we're putting out new information, especially on new laws that pop out, it'll just let you know there's a new video. It doesn't bug you. It doesn't spam you or anything like that. So don't worry. It's just YouTube. All right. I closed on a co-owned rental property in April of 2021. I did not have an LLC with my co-owner and we are still in the process of forming an LLC to protect the asset. Can we still take all the real estate deductions on our 2021 tax return absent having an LLC in place for the last year? Before there were LLCs, there were these things called partnerships. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have to necessarily have a partnership agreement to form a partnership. Still don't. Still don't. So whether you had an LLC or not, you have effectively created a partnership. Unless you've done this as tenants in common, which I think has to be declared that way when you purchase. Yeah, I think it's going to depend on how you guys took title. If it's tenants in common, then you don't have to do anything. You just... You're, you're taking your portion, they're taking their portion, whoever you bought it with, depends on how many co-owners there are. So depending on what state you're in, you may have to file, register in the state. They're doing an LLC. Yeah, they're doing an LLC, but what about that time before they were an LLC? Chances are I'm just treating it as a partnership. I may have to file a partnership return. If your tenants in common, you don't have to, but if you guys bought it as joint tenants, now we have an issue. If, if, if you're married, Maybe not as big of an issue, but the answer is really, you can still take the deductions. It doesn't matter whether you own it at an LLC or not. You get the real estate deductions if it was investment real estate mm-hmm. or it says rental property. So assuming it's not an Airbnb or VRBO, you would still get all your deductions, your real estate taxes, your interest. It's not a primary residence uh, since it says rental. So you'd still get all the deductions and you get to depreciate it. It just gets a little funky. So from a practical point of view, we know the LLC is going to need an EIN. Would you use that EIN for the original partnership? No, I don't think you could. I don't think you could either. I think you would just, so, you know, chances are what they did is they're tenants in common if they're unrelated individuals, in which case you would just cut it down the middle and you wouldn't even have to do a partnership. You just say, I owned a 50% interest in this real estate and this is my portion. When you put it in the LLC, then it goes to a partnership return and it's going to give you each a K-1 and you quit doing that. That's the easiest route. That's just me. What do you say? No, I, I I like that idea. It's a lot less complicated than filing a partnership return than filing an LLC as a partnership. And mm-hmm. because what you end up doing is, yeah, you start off the first year as as with your tick interest, tenants of common interest, mm-hmm. but then in the second year you contribute those interests to that LLC. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, by the way, I have a partner, Clint, that also has a really great YouTube channel. Apparently, he's trolling me right now because he's mad. Hey, Patty, you should shout out his uh, YouTube channel as well, because uh, if you guys like the asset protection, he focuses really well on asset protection and he explains it. Uh, he's been doing it 20 something years. He's really good at it. So you can check out uh, Clint's YouTube channel as well. Don't want him to be a hater. He's supposed to be nice. He's supposed to be nice to his partners, right? Anyway. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, yeah, it is amazing. Clint's, you know, Clint and I have been partners for 20-something years, so, but we do, uh, we, we do like to make fun of each other sometimes. Somebody says, I already subscribed to both, so you have good taste, Francis. All right, somebody asked a good question, and I know that it's over on the other side, but if I'm forming a partnership, can one of my LLCs be the partner and I'm the other partner? Technically, yeah. Anybody could be another partner. Even if it's disregarded to them? I would say even if it's disregarded to them, as long as it's another EIN, it's going to end up on your return. You're going to be reporting it on both sides. But 
I would say that you might want somebody says these guys are no fun. Why? I do not. Anyway, some people are making fun. All right. So um, you you might want to use a corporation if depending on what type of expenses you have. I don't think I'd ever do that. I'd always be looking for a spouse is really. And if you don't have a spouse, then I'd be just keeping it as disregarded. So you're looking for a spouse because you need one to be a partner. Yeah, I need a partner. I need a partner in real estate. Will you, will you marry, marry me? me? Yeah. <laughs> hey, there's worse things. You probably do better percentage wise if you did it that way. All right. Can you de- defer the depreciation recapture along with the capital gain by doing a 1031 exchange? Mm-hmm. How does cost segregation play into the calculation? Okay, on to the first question. Yes. That's the beauty of the 1031 uh, exchange is that you get to defer all gains, including that depreciation recapture. Eventually, it's going to catch up to you. You're going to when you sell that final property and don't replace it. Yeah, so it, it gets a little weird when you get the cost segregation. Here's the only rule you have to know. So if you guys don't know what a cost segregation is, it's actually the way you're supposed to be depreciating your real estate. So here's just the rabbit hole, just for a second. Depreciation recapture. When you depreciate real estate, which is the structure of the real estate, has a useful life according to the IRS. Most accountants use for single family residences, duplexes, things that somebody's living in, apartment complexes, 27 and a half years. The land, you don't depreciate because the land doesn't lose any value. But the building's going to fall over in 27 and a half years is the way they look at it. You're going to have to replace it every 27 and a half years. So um, if you take that deduction and you write it off, when you sell it, you have something called unrecaptured depreciation, which is sounds weird, but it just means I have to pay tax on my write-off. So if I wrote off the building, the entire building, so let's say I bought a piece of property, it was 1.5 million, the land was 500,000 and a million was the building. And I sell it after depreciating the entire building and I sell it for, uh, what would it be? 1.5 million. Well, actually my basis, I wouldn't have anything. I wouldn't have anything. Let's say I sell it for $2 million. Mm -hmm. So I have some gain. A lot of that's going to be, or all of it's going to be depreciation recapture. I'm going to have to recognize that. And it's going to be taxed at my ordinary rate, max, maxed out at 25%. So that's number one. We have to pay tax on recapture before we pay long-term capital gains. You pay recapture first. When you cost seg a property, you're looking at the property and you're doing it the way you're supposed to, which is the property isn't just structure. There's stuff in that property. There's stuff outside the property. The stuff outside the property might be you have a walkway, you have a fence, you have a driveway, you have some trees that you planted. If if you're like me, I think I planted 40 trees at one of our buildings. That's 15-year property. You can write that off under the rules as they are right now. It's called 168K. I could write that off in one year. You go inside the building. And you look at the cabinets, you look at the carpeting, you look at anything that's removable, and that's going to be five or seven-year property. And you could write it off in one year. When we do these tests, it's called a cost segregation. That means usually you get about 30% of the improvement value. So back to my example, I bought it for 1.5, half a million dollars is the land. That means there's a million dollar improvement. In year one, I could get around a $300,000 deduction by doing a cost segregation. And if you want to learn more about that, by all means, jump back onto the YouTube channels. Both Clint and I go over that ad nauseum in there. That's a cost seg. If I choose to do the cost segregation, 
The only difference between a traditional 1031 exchange where you just have regular recapture and, and capital gains that I'm that I'm kicking down the, the road is I have to keep that same methodology when I buy a replacement partner mm-hmm. uh, uh, property. I need to cost seg the replacement party uh, property, but I don't have any recapture at that point. It just moves forward. The basis of that original property. So I bought the property for 1.5, half a million of land, a million dollars of improvement. I took a $300,000 deduction. I wait two years. I sell it and buy a $3 million property. So long as I use the same methodology and break out the components of that building, my basis isn't going to be 3 million. It's going to be the original basis of those properties, the 1.5, and my depreciation would just continue forward. So assuming that I sell my business for $3 million and buy a $3 million replacement property, that's how it works. So not to get too crazy, but it doesn't matter. You're going to get to 1031 exchange. You're going to get to do a real real estate replacement, whether it's 10 properties or one property, you get to do a 1031 exchange. And no, you will not have to pay any sort of recapture when you do that, so long as you acquire under the rules replacement property of equal or greater value. Cool? Cool. Sometimes I like to go down the rabbit hole on that, but I think it's it's worth it. Some of you guys know what cost segregation is. Some of you, some of you guys, it's probably the first time you're hearing that. And I think there's two types of accountants in the world, those that understand real estate tax and those who don't. Those who understand real estate tax understand cost segregation because it's a huge tool in our toolbox. And you want to work with accountants that actually know what they're talking about when it comes to real estate. It doesn't have to be us, by the way. Any good real estate accountant will be able to help you with that. We have a great group that we work out of that does cost segs. And it's a real simple test. Is the juice worth the squeeze? If I look and see how much a cost seg is going to cost and break down, if it's going to give me $7 for every dollar I spend, I'm probably doing it. If it's giving me $2 for every $1 I spend, I'm probably not. It's not going to be worth my time. But you get to decide that. You, you know what? This is one of those areas. You often hear us talking about, well, to do cost seg, uh, you may want to be a real estate professional. Mm-hmm. But that's not every single time. There are situations where the cost segregation still works out. So I think this this is one of those areas where it always pays to ask ahead of time. You know what's weird? You could actually do a cost seg on a property that you already sold and see if it lowers your taxes. How about that? Because the, the when you start treating the personal property inside it differently, the <laughs> tangible property, the the seven, the five, the fifteen year property, mm-hmm. even if we just make that election, you don't have recapture on that property if it doesn't have any value. So again, the example I will use: buy a building, one point five million. Let's say there's a hundred thousand dollars worth of carpeting and linoleum and tile, and I sell that building, and it's all destroyed. Like somebody's just going to tear it out because I've had the building for 10 years. I have to pay 25% on that. Whatever I wrote off, I get to write I have to pay 25% if I used regular depreciation. Mm-hmm. If I cost segged it, I would have to pay zero recapture on it because it has no value. And that's the difference between those. So we see significant savings when somebody goes to sell a building. I think the last one I saw was a, a, a building that was purchased at 2.5. They sold it at 3.3 and the tax savings after the sale, we're $78,000 in the client's pocket. We like that. Yep. All right. Let's see. Does, do you have any... Uh, so somebody's asking about NAR. That would be Frank and Sherry Candelario. Uh, it's, a, it's looking for the NAR folks. 
that's uh, National Association of Recovery Residences. And it's a lot of, it's actually a really interesting way to get involved in real estate. All right. Is lending considered active income versus rents or passive income? How do I account for any income I get on lending on our, our real estate deals? And how does it run through my uh, LLC account? What do you say? This is how I look at it. Uh, if I'm running lend- the lending through an entity, I'm looking at, is this their primary purpose in life for mm-hmm. that entity? If it is, then I'm treating it as active, ordinary income. I'm getting interest back on those loans. I'm treating that as ordinary income. If it's not, or if I'm just doing the lending in my own name, that interest is going to be considered portfolio income. Mm-hmm. That's go, going to go on your tax return as interest. Which is just ordinary income. Yeah. It's not passive. It's not active. It's just ordinary income. The only way I could see making the income passive is what we've talked about in the past is you're just sponsoring the entity and somebody else is managing it and I'm not doing anything. How do you think you can get interest? So I think that if, if, if I set up, like if I gave money to a bank and I'm just a silent owner in a bank mm-hmm. and I'm getting the profit out, that's going to be passive income to me if I'm a silent partner. Partner, yes. If I'm loaning money in, it's going to be portfolio income back to me when it, when it gives me interest. It's going to be active income if it rises to the level of a trader business. And it rises to the level of trader business when it's regular, continuous, and substantial. And Jeff is right. It just means this is what I do. And the courts are kind of all over the place, but there are some temporary regulations out there on material participation. And if you want to be a trader business in lending, I would say you're probably spending over 300 or excuse me, 500 hours a, a year on it. If you were just occasionally lending portfolio income, it's not passive, it's just treated as ordinary income. It is not subject to self-employment tax, but you can't use it to offset passive mm-hmm. gain, uh, nor can, or excuse me, you can't use passive losses to offset it since obviously it's, it's, it's already a gain. You're making money. How do I count for income I get on lending on, on real estate deals? And how does it run through my LLC account? Here's the one thing I would say, and this is going to sound kind of weird. If I am loaning money to Jeff, I have exposure to Jeff going after me for Dodd-Frank or some, some state law usury. Hey, am I doing predatory lending? Am I violating? Hey, it was Jeff to buy a house and I didn't, I didn't use a qualified uh, mortgage. Uh, what are they called? The... Uh, not an, appra- not an appraiser, but the, and basically a mortgage, forget the actual. Not the underwriter. Basically underwriting, but they have a term of art for it. Okay. I forget what it is, but but I don't, if, if I don't have somebody who's qualifying you, then I could be, have exposure underneath that statute. So I don't necessarily want my pot of cash to be exposed to Jeff. So what I would end up doing is having an LLC that does nothing other than hold cash, my investments. And if I'm going to lend it, I'm going to lend it at an interest rate to an entity that I'm using to lend to third parties. I'd use a corporation typically. And that way there's nothing in the corporation for them to get. So if Jeff gets mad at me and I did something wrong, they can't get into my pot of cash. The most they're going to get is that corporation. My worst case scenario is I did a bad thing and I lost my lost my loan money, but I'm not I'm not exposing myself to have massive loss of all my value in my account. That's the only thing I would say. So if you're just doing a once in a while loan to somebody on real estate and it's you're not doing a ton, maybe one or two a year, I'm okay out of your main account. Otherwise, you should strongly consider 
putting an intermediary entity in between you and the pot of cash and whoever it is that could come after you for any of your activity as a lender. So, so looking at your corp example, you lend to me, then the only thing, the only asset in that corp is my loan. Correct. And maybe some cash, but not much. And when it, when it gets paid, the lo- like, let's say that I loan it to my corp at 7% and it loans it to you at, or I, I loan it to my corp at 5% and it loans it to you for seven. Mm-hmm. The corp's only making that little 2% spread. The rest of it's going back to the actual lender. So like, there's not much. Because they have to repay that loan. You got it. If you guys like that type of activity, here's my partner's face. There's Mr. Coons. Uh, we are teaching another tax and asset protection workshop live on May 7th. And again, absolutely free. If you want to learn about asset protection, we do a tax planning and legacy planning session in the afternoon. Uh, it's, it's, it's a day well spent. They're from six till four Pacific standard time. And you can learn about LLCs, land trusts, living trusts, corporations, S and C. And, uh, it's, it's, it's actually pretty entertaining. Clint does a fantastic job in the morning. And Patty says nine to four. Did I say six to four? It's 9. AM said 9. AM to 4. PM Pacific standard time. Um, whatever, Patty, you heard me. What did I say? Whatever it is. It's 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time to 4 p.m. So Patty can get her way. She she wants to make sure that I'm not telling you because it says 9 a.m. That she's not saying 6 a.m. I'm getting trolled. You said 6 a.m. Sandra, I believe you. Patty, I don't know. Patty, I don't know. I'm giving her the stink eye. I was using Hawaii time, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, So so 9 a.m. Sometimes I just regurgitate numbers 9 a.m to 4 p.m pacific standard time we'll make sure that we get it see this is not a paid promotion but what i do like about this is you can go to an asset protection seminar and they're going to teach all about liability and whatever you can go to a tax seminar and they're going to teach you that side of it but i think this kind of brings the balance to it i don't they have to work together they got to go together and it's even more than that clint calls it the uh the four-legged stool, it's the asset protection has to go well with the tax planning, has to go well with the business planning, has to go well with the legacy planning. And there's a lot of truth to that. You want to make sure that you don't have one leg that's 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 longer than the other mm-hmm. or that a leg is missing. Otherwise, your stool could fall over. All right. I borrow $100,000 to purchase a property. I get a good deal on the property since I paid $100,000 for a property valued at one fifty. dollars let me just stop you right here. If you bought this and it was an arm's length transaction, you did not buy a $150,000 property. You bought a $100,000 property. That's the fair market value since you paid the fair market value. If we start saying, I underpaid and I paid below market for something, you could get hit with a taxable event. Like if Jeff sold me a sweetheart deal and he marked the property way under, like it was 150,000 all day long and he, he could sell that for 150. And he comes to me and he says, ha ha ha, I'm going through a, a nasty situation. Somebody's coming after me. I'll sell it to you for a hundred. I have to pay tax on the amount that's, that's under. Usually it's related parties where they get into trouble. But if you bought this arm's length from somebody else, forget about what it's worth. It's what you paid. Is there a taxable basis of $50,000 the year of the purchase? No. Jeff? No. Your basis is what you paid for it, including yeah. your loan money. Mm-hmm. If you turn around and sold it the next year for one fifty, at that point, you'd have a capital gain of $50,000. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I'm still getting trolled, Jeff. And I was going to mention about the uh, uh, buying something at a discount, especially from related parties, family mm-hmm. and all. Don't do it. That ends up triggering uh, a, a gift aspect of the sale. That so probably they, just could be taxable to you. Well, how I've usually seen it is uh, I, I sell you the property for a hundred thousand. That's actually priced at one hundred fifty thousand dollars. I and gave I'm you giving 50. you a fifty thousand dollar gift. Yeah, but you don't. What you don't want to say is it's a hundred. Right, because if the IRS sees that it appraised at 150 and you sold it for something below that, that would be taxable event to you. So in theory, you just transferred value, and it wouldn't be a gift because you were buying it. Like you did, you pretended like there was no value. But we don't like. I don't think we want to worry about that. No, for this guy or this gal, whatever it is, it's a purchase basis. You you have a basis of a hundred thousand dollars. You only have to worry about that increase. If you sell the property for 150, and if it's a rental property, you're going to be using the hundred thousand dollars for depreciation. You're probably going to have some long-term capital gains if you hold it over a year, or you're going to have short-term capital gains if you sell it in less than a year. If it's your home, hopefully you're getting the 121 exclusion, which is the 250 thousand or 500 thousand dollar capital gain exclusion when you sell your principal residence. What is the capital gains amount? It would be let's say that I bought a property for 150. And I sold it, or so I bought a property for one hundred thousand dollars. I sell it for one fifty. The capital gains under that scenario would be fifty thousand dollars. It would either be short term or long term, depending on how long I held it. The only other nuance here is if I'm if I bought it to sell it. If I bought a property for a hundred, knowing that I was getting a good deal, and I was immediately going to turn around and sell it, they could term you a dealer. In which case, it's it's still taxed as ordinary income. You're going to hear that term over and over again, right? It's short-term capital gains, which is taxed as ordinary income. But I am a dealer, and if I'm materially participating, then I'd be assessed Social Security taxes on that as well. That's the problem with uh, buying properties to sell them. Somebody says, why is there a difference between $250,000 and $500,000 on their 121 exclusion? It's because an individual gets two fifty. If you're married filing jointly, you get the you get five hundred. And if you are a widow or widower within two years of your spouse's death, you can qualify for the half a million dollar. Yeah, one twenty one is actually fairly simple. You lived in it two of the last five years as your primary residence. Uh, it doesn't have to be your only residence. You could have two residents, right, and still qualify two under in a four year stretch. Uh, but you have to have lived in it for two years, and and your name has to be on title. If you're married, they consider both spouses on title. If you get a divorce, they can consider, as long as it's sold within a certain period of time, mm-hmm. both spouses on title. If you're a widower, same situation. It's both spouses on title for a certain period of time, but you get the 250 versus 500. And then if you don't make it for the two years out of five years, there's a reason for it, death, divorce, changing your job, you could get a partial exclusion too. Like yes. you, taught whole classes on 121. In fact, you had to sit through one. We did a continuing education for accountants and it was a joy. An hour of nothing but 121 exclusion nuance. All right. That's good for that. Let's go into this one. This is Jeff's favorite because it's a limited liability partnership. So whenever he sees LLPs, he immediately comes into my office and goes, hey, there's an LLP. All right. So I am a limited liability partnership partner in an apartment complex LLP. It's registered as an LLP in Delaware, but the apartments are in Alaska. 
So it's an entity holding a bunch of apartments in a different state. This will be the first year of the partnership. How do you recommend estimating and preparing for next year's tax liability? It is my understanding that I'll pay tax on my share of the K-1 income, regardless of the amount paid out to investors during the year. How does this affect state taxes also? Which reminds me of the first question earlier on. You should see how excited I get when I see a triple LP. He gets excited. Jeff never smiles when he's coming <laughs> in. He goes, did you see the one on Alaska? <laughs> That's true. You, so- <laughs> you walked in. I saw it. Go ahead. And you said no. <laughs> I, I did. I was like, I don't look at the question. <laughs> and he just looks, shakes his head. All right. Um, so, yes, you're, you're exactly right that what is reported on the K-1 that you will report as income or loss on your 1040 is going to be your portion of the partnership's mm-hmm. income. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter what they pay out to you. And a lot of these, this sounds like a syndication, a lot of them have different payment plans that they're going to pay you out so much. And I've seen them where I'm showing a loss on my K-1, but I got $100,000 back of return of capital. Mm-hmm. Uh one has nothing to do with the other. Yeah. You have you have two things going on. It was like the S corporation. Mm-hmm. We have the income that's going on inside the apartments. And I'll just tell you, my experience with syndications is the first year, you're going to have a loss. Yeah. And it's not because you lost money. It's because they're depreciating the hell out of the apartment building. It's a tax loss. It's a paper tax loss. Remember that cost segregation? I buy a $5 million apartment building. There's a good chance I'm going to have a $1 million to $1.2 million deduction in year one. So it's going to kick through a loss. But since you're a limited partner, you're not going to get to use all that loss. You're going to carry it forward. It's going to be a big loss. It's going to prevent you from having any income from the partnership. And then if it gives you cash, if, if it's returning your investment, you're not a tax liability. If it goes above your investment, now we have a long-term capital gain treatment on that because that's return in excess of basis, like I think you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. So that's it. So what are we going to look at for your next year's tax liability? We want to get the projections from the syndicator. What do you expect in year one and two? And there's a you know probably 99% chance you're not going to have any income. Yeah, if the syndication is really good at all, they're they're going to have those projections already established mm-hmm. of how much they expect to make this year and the next year and the next year and what your share of it's going to be. And I would depend on those. Uh, if they're projecting you're going to have $100,000 of profit in a year, I'd probably tuck away maybe a third of that mm-hmm. for tax purposes. Now, I mean, here's something else somebody's asking. It's like, what can I use the loss against something else? You can use passive losses against passive income. So if I am a silent partner in a business like Jeff's Pizza Shop, and I don't do anything, I don't materially participate, I don't have substantial activity in it, I'm not regularly and continuously participating, and I'm just a passive owner, Mm -hmm. I could actually use whatever I'm making off the pizza shop, I can use my real estate loss on, because this would be considered passive real estate loss. If I have other income from other rental activities. So I have a bunch of other properties and I'm making money and it's positive. Say I make $20,000 of income from my other activities. I could use the losses from this from this LLP to offset that, which is why real estate investors continue to accumulate more real estate, even when they don't need more real estate, because quite often they're doing it just for the tax write-offs 
so that they don't get killed in taxes on the income. There's a tax appetite there that is, in essence, subsidizing their purchases. So it's like if somebody walked up to you and said, you know, you buy this, you're going to save $50,000 this year on taxes. Now you're looking at that going, well, I get a rebate of 50 grand if I buy into this deal. Hmm. Yeah, it makes it very attractive. Whereas if you didn't have a tax appetite, you would just be going on the deal itself. But but when you get into the where you have lots of different types of income coming in, it is part of the calculation. In regards to the state issue, uh, the LLP is registered in Delaware and they will file an uh, LLP uh, return with Delaware. It's more or less like a $300 fee with uh, information. They, they, in, in order to operate a, a apartment building in Alaska, that entity is either registered in Alaska or they have a sub-entity sitting in Alaska. If it mm-hmm. makes money in Alaska, you're paying Alaska tax on it, Yeah. period. Now, the the syndication could choose to do what, what is it a composite return yes so they're doing a so they could pay the the state taxes or they could just pass it to you on your k1 and say you pay the state taxes it depends on your syndicator what do you think how many do the composite versus the i've seen an optional to do i kind of like the composite return especially if i have a whole bunch of them so i don't have to deal with all these state returns mm. the taxes pay they've they've paid it for me in this case, Alaska is one of those states that doesn't have an individual income tax. Yay, so we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> you're going to have to report it on your federal, but you're not going to have to pay neither Delaware or Alaska. Yeah, if you were in a state that had a uh, a state tax, then it becomes critical. Here, it sounds like there's, it's, it's a non-issue, so you don't have to worry. Now, if you're living neither, if you don't live in Alaska you live in a state that has tax. Let's say you live in California. You're going to pay tax. You're going to have to report this income on your personal return Ooh, to California. Yeah, yeah. So some some states say if you if you live in a state that has uh, income taxes, they're going to use this to assess more income tax yeah. on you. They don't no offset on this one. All right. I just sold my condo that I owned for 30 years. This just made me think of Fight Club. Um, do you remember? Do you remember his condo? I just sold my condo that I owned for three years. One year I lived and two years I rented. So one year I lived, I think they meant lived in and two that I rented. So they rented it out. How long do I have before I have to pay taxes on my sale? Technically, your your taxes are due as they're accrued. You might have some quarterly taxes on it. Your actual tax bill is going to be the, what is it, April 15th of the year following yeah. your... So if you sold it in 2022, you're going to have to pay a tax on it April 15th, 2023. Yeah, but if, if you don't want to pay tax on it, like depends on how much you made, whether you have capital gains, you can't go back into a 1031 exchange. The only thing you really can do is look at other, if, if I have capital gains, you're looking for capital losses. You could always pick up, you know, some, some things you have that are losers you could dump. Uh, or you look at a qualified opportunity zone if you want to defer it mm-hmm. and you could defer it out until 2026. So there's, there are some ways around, even if you've sold it and technically, because if it's a condo sale, uh, if it was sold last year, 2021, you'd have until just the end of June to set up a qualified opportunity zone fund. If you wanted to go that route. Yep. So you're on a, you're on a clock. Otherwise it would be next year. Uh, let's see. How do you establish the cost basis of passive real estate investments upon an owner's death? Jeff Rowe. I'm going to say this a little differently. You really don't. When a person dies, 
and you inherit their assets, their new assets to you Mm -hmm. at the current fair market value. So going back to this, how do you establish that? If it's real estate, I'm getting appraisals on everything I inherited. Yep. It's going to cost you a little money, but I really want to do that to establish my cost. And 100% correct. And there's, there, there is a way to do it. You could do it on the date of passing, or you could do it, I think it's nine months later. Six months. Six months later. And that's only under one circumstance when it goes up in value or down in value. Can't remember which one. I think if it goes down in value. I think I want to say if it goes down in value, but yes, there's only one circumstance that you can do the six month alternative valuation. Right. So it's so basically somebody passes away and they have an asset. The basis of that asset steps up to the fair market value on the date of passing. If it's real estate, you can start redepreciating it at that new high basis. This is why it's really important. So the, the the old adage is if you want to be you want the best tax strategy is you buy borrow and die. That's technically the best tax strategy that exists out there. You buy assets, they go up in value, you borrow against them. You don't pay tax when you borrow against them. And then you pass away. And when you pass away, the basis steps up. So your your heirs get it. I mean, they could sell it, not pay any tax. Or let's say that you've been writing off a bunch of houses and that continues to grow. You 1031 exchange them. Now you have $5 million of real estate and you pass away, they now have $5 million of real estate at $5 million a basis. And they do the exact same thing. They just let it continue to grow. You trade it for more real estate. If they need cash, they borrow against that and continue to allow the asset to, to do its little expansion thing. So, you know. If and, and I want to distinguish one thing is the difference between a gift and an inheritance. Mm-hmm. If I have a rental property that I bought for a hundred thousand. It's now worth 300,000. And I gift that to my children. They step into my shoes. Their cost basis, a hundred thousand plus whatever depreciation has been taken. Hint parents don't give your kids stuff right before you die because you're like, Oh, I'm going to transfer to you. And I'm going to transfer to you from a tax standpoint. That's a horrible idea. If it's Mm -hmm. an appreciated asset, if it's sentimental stuff, go for it. But if it's something that I have a hundred thousand dollar basis in, and it's worth a million, please don't do that because you just created a huge tax liability if they dump it because they're going to get your basis. And I've lived that. I've watched many, many clients come here going, what did my accountant do? And you're like, well, they were worried about the estate tax going down. So maybe we had one where they gave away a building. The extra liability was, you know, over a million bucks. The accountant, you know, is obviously in a corner at that point. They're not too they're not too responsive. And you're like, why'd they do it? Because they were worried about a huge estate tax. But what they just did is gave you a huge capital gain issue when the assets disposed of and you missed out on all that step up in basis. They did that with a building that was about a 50-year-old building. Yeah, and it was millions of dollars. So the tax lie, the, the tax ramifications was over a million bucks and the kids were really pissed off at the accountant. Uh, the other mistake I, I've seen is where people will either gift their assets or put them into a trust to protect their assets from Medicare. Yeah. Not realizing that Medicare has a five-year clawback. We just dealt with that one. Right. And and my example is I put all my assets into a, and we're talking about an irrevocable trust. Mm -hmm. Or an annuity or something. Or an annuity or I gift it to my kids. Medicare can look at for those assets in the next five years. That's somebody who's going to have 
medical expenses mm-hmm. and they don't want to pay for them themselves. They don't want to deplete their estate. Right. Medicare doesn't let you just do that. They look back at you and go, hey, is it Medicare or Medicaid? I always Might forget be which Medicaid. One. I think it's Medicaid. Well, and then, so you're qualifying and they're giving you this benefit. You have to, in order to qualify, you have to be below a certain asset threshold or an income threshold. And if you do it by giving your stuff away, they look back and say, if you did that within five years, you, you, there's some pretty big penalties. You're, you'll be denied benefits and you'll end up with some ramifications for doing so. So you always talk to an elder law lawyer when you're yes. doing that. All right. We're getting towards the end. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Patty will also put up Clint's. Uh, we actually have two. Clint, myself, we have Coffee with Carl. We have Pia for Infinity Investing. We have Infinity Investing. We have lots of YouTube channels out there, but the two main ones that will get you everything you need to know on tax and asset protection uh, is uh, Clint's, which again, Patty will share, and my channel, which is the Anderson channel. All right. And you can see lots and lots of fun stuff. You could also see the Tax Tuesday if you want to live stream it online on YouTube. You could certainly do that. And we obviously put the recordings up in the channel. So if you guys like that stuff, it's it's actually a kick in the pants. And so somebody that is a first time listener, it's a little different, huh? We answer a lot of questions. We try to give you guys back. It's always like that. We try to pick questions that, what, there's not much rhyme to reason. The people that are picking them isn't me really, but I try to just pick a wide variety that allows us to dive into certain issues. That's what they're on the lookout is things that aren't just straightforward, yes or no, but allows us to expand at a point so we can continue to increase our tax knowledge so that it's not so fearful for you guys, not so scary. And you're able to actually put some things into place because we believe you're better stewards of your money than the government is. And I think we're right. (laughs) You might agree. I'd rather you guys keep that money and do good stuff with it than giving it to our government who God knows what they're doing. Apparently we give it all away. All right. Questions. If you have questions that you want answered, Tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors, there's no cost. So by all means, Ask your way, ask away, and then visit us at andersonadvisors.com. Jeff, anything you want to say? No, I, I kind of felt like I went over a bit on that last question. So I'm going to give you credit for getting done on time. It's 404. We just missed it. But there's an over under. I think I still win. I always bet on the over. <laughs> just call me Pete Rose. Just kidding. I actually grew up in Philadelphia. I like Pete Rose, and he's out here now. So he's a good guy. But uh, so we shouldn't make gambling things about Pete. He worked at Charlie Hustle, worked as Katusha. All right, guys. Uh, again, questions, shoot them in there. You'll see that we uh, we respond whether you're a client or no. And uh, join us again in two weeks. Every other week, we do the Tax Tuesday. If you can't make it, you can always listen to the recordings throughout the, usually within a few days, we'll make sure. And, uh, and we'll take care of you guys. So thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 